Church, I tell you again that Jesus is going to make heaven and nature sing. We've seen that. We're going to see it more. Jesus is going to make heaven and nature sing. Today our passage is going to be from 2 Peter. Forgive me for wrongly saying last week that it was in 1 Peter. I know some of you spent some time in that. There's obviously good stuff there, but I know you studied with the purpose of being prepared for today, and I messed you up, so sorry about that. Um, where I think our discussion will be a little bit easier if we actually read verses 1 through 14. I made that decision this morning, um, but the sermon will definitely focus on verses 10 through 14. But if, if we look at all 14 verses, it'll make our discussion easier, I, I believe. So we're going to do that. But the focus during the sermon will be on verses 10 through 14. So next week, uh, we will be in Isaiah. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. And we will learn much, much more next week. Revelation is not the only place that it talks about the new heavens and the new earth. But it was on the minds of God's people far before God revealed that to us in the last book of the Bible. Let's do this. Let's read verses 1 through 14 together. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook... This one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Oh, you know, I'm going to stop there. 
May God bless the reading and the discussion and preaching of his word today. Let's dig in on our own individually, and we'll begin the discussion in a few minutes. So I think the biggest amount of time we're going to spend is in verse 10. And part of verse 10 is repeated in verses 11 and 12. Let's look at verse 10 together. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So how, how does our passage today, and particularly verse 10, connect to the rest of Second Peter? Peter is writing, especially in chapters 2 and 3 of this short letter, To prepare God's people for judgment. There are many false teachers that are all around. And and we deal with that in our world today. But there are many false teachers. They have no fear of God. They are scoffing and mocking God. They're scoffing and mocking the very idea that he would ever come to judge. That he would ever even return. It's almost as if they think he put the world into motion and then just left. Was never coming back. So that is Peter's emphasis as we examine these terms like melt and burn up. His emphasis is that God will judge and that we are to be ready. He is not writing a science textbook in this passage. He is not... Asking the questions, I assume, I have no reason to believe that he's asking the questions that we would ask in our very scientific age that we are currently in. Now, those questions are helpful, and there is a place for that. But I just, as I shared earlier, I just want to be careful that we keep in mind his purpose for writing is to warn of coming judgment. He's not looking to explain the nitty-gritty details of which we may be interested in, of which I am interested in some of. He is sharing what will happen because he is urging his readers to be ready for the day and he wants God's people to look forward to that day. So he starts verse 10, he brings up the day of the Lord and his readers already have knowledge of this day and as our discussion demonstrated Many of us already have knowledge that something called the day of the Lord is coming. In verse 1 of this chapter, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He's saying that in verse 2, he says that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So this idea of the day of the Lord and what that requires of us has already been stated clearly in the Old Testament in the teaching of Jesus, and also in the teachings of the other apostles. Later on in chapter 3, he actually, the verse verse 15, the verse I accidentally started reading, he even says that some of the things that Paul wrote are complicated and difficult to figure out. So even Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is talking about how difficult some of these things are. But he says clearly that these other writers of Scripture who wrote what they wrote prior to the time that he wrote this, have spoken of the day of the Lord. And God's people that Peter are writing to, they already know some things about this. So the phrase, the day of the Lord, appears about 20 times in the Old Testament, particularly in the prophetic books. 
And what we see time and time again is that um, it signals a visitation by God that brings both final and complete salvation and judgment. Final and complete salvation. And I believe that could that that is that another way of talking about final and complete salvation is the glorification of Romans chapter eight, where God foreknew us. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of the son. He called us. He justified us. He glorified us. So so final salvation. Your body's redemption. That's happening on the day of the Lord and on the same day. Judgment of all of those that do not know God. We see both of these things happening on the day of the Lord dozens of times in Scripture. So the day of the Lord is found 20 times in the Old Testament, but mention of the day itself is referenced possibly hundreds of times in the Old Testament. I did not have time to read them all this week like I wanted to. And there's also many references in the New Testament also. Philippians 1.6, it's a verse that I share often. Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. What is the good work that God began in us? Salvation. He's going to bring completion to the work of salvation. I would say it's the resurrection, the glorification of our body. He's going to bring that to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So I believe that Philippians 1.6 is a direct reference to the day of the Lord. So, so in 2 Peter 3.10, it says the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Did you ever have a thief call you and have you put his arrival on the calendar? No, no, you didn't. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2 says, You yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This phrase is also in the Olivet Discourse, of which we've referenced in Matthew 24 and in Mark chapter 13. So the day of the Lord is going to come. What is going to happen to God's good creation? What is going to happen to the world that we read of last week in Romans chapter 8. Is it all going to get burned up? Is it going to be uncreated? Are we just going to be in heaven forever and earth is not going to exist? Last week we saw that this planet, this earth, really that all things would be restored. Or set free from the bondage to corruption that our environment, that our world, I think I said the rocks and the trees and the chicken and the deer, you know, all the groaning that is taking place. You know, we saw last week that it would be set free, it would be delivered from the effects of sin. So, in light of that clear truth from last week's passage, how do we deal with the language of. 1 Peter 3.10. Is Peter saying something different? Is he disagreeing with Paul? I hope we would all say, of course he's not. <laughs> but that there is, there are tr- there's a truth or multiple truths here. And that they, they are, they're speaking of the same thing. So, 
The day of the Lord will come like a thief. And what's going to happen according to Peter? The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. This is very intense language. This is not the only place that we see language like this. In Isaiah chapter 13, this is just one of dozens of references from the Old Testament prophets. But in Isaiah 13, 9 through 11, he speaks of the day of the Lord. Isaiah 13, 9 through 11. He says, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. There's the heavens and the heavenly bodies being referenced. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And then he goes on to say, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. So we see the judgment of sin accompanied with what's going on in the heavens. I want to read a a passage from Revelation chapter 6. Most of us have been taught that Revelation, everything in that book, happens chronologically. I I have to say that I don't believe that's the case. What I'm about to read to you from chapter 6 is a reference to final judgment. You know, it is clearly speaking of final judgment in Revelation 21 or 20, 21, 22. But we see final judgment take place in other parts of that book. And where we see it, we see reference made to the heavens, to, to incredible, like, just, just as far as the creation goes, major things change. So in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, when he, that is Jesus, the Lamb of God, opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became a sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So there's reference to God's creation, right? Goes on to say in verse 15, and this is how I, why I believe it's final judgment. Verse 15, then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free, they hid themselves in the caves. And among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? It's a reference to final judgment on the day of the Lord in Revelation chapter 6. So, what does it mean that the heavens will pass away? This word, pass away, Found in 2 Peter 3.10, it occurs about 30 times in the New Testament. And it has a variety of meanings. It can mean that something goes away and dies. It can mean that, hey, the day is over. You know, it's 8 o'clock, I'm going to bed an hour, the day's over. It can mean that someone walks by you. Or it can mean that you're driving on Interstate 95, you're going south, and... Instead of stopping in Savannah, you just pass by. It can mean all those things. What does it mean that the heavenly bodies will be burned up? 
This Greek word translated burned up, it only appears in this verse and in verse 12. It appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It, it, it's, I, I believe, and, and we can support this from other passages, but I believe it's speaking of a refining fire. So when reading portions of Scripture elsewhere, it causes me to think that the heavenly bodies will no longer be needed because there is a better, more perfect light that is coming. And I had a big aha moment on Wednesday with this as I was talking with some of you about it. But Psalm 19.1, it says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. So that's now. And that was then when it was written. But in Revelation 22, when it speaks of that heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, it says that night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Might it be that the heavens are no longer needed? To declare the glory of God since God will dwell with his people and we will see him in all of his glory. Might it be that these changes take place in the heavens? Because while they were showing us the glory of God, now we're seeing him face to face in the fullness of that glory in our own glorified bodies. I ask you this, what does it mean that the heavenly bodies will be dissolved? And this is, this is difficult. This word dissolved is used 42 times in the New Testament. And 35 of those times it has to do with untying something or setting it free. 35 out of 42 times it has to do with untying something or setting it free. It appears in verse 11 and 12 also. This word dissolved appears three times in our passage. What Christians call the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, the week before Jesus, the Sunday before Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus tells the disciples to go into the town in front of them and find a donkey. And then he tells them to untie it. Go get someone else's donkey and untie it and tell them that the Lord has need of it. So they went in and they did what he said. There was a rope around the donkey or a chain or something. They untied it and that donkey was free to be used for another purpose. In Matthew 21, 2, I'm sorry, in Mark 7, 35, Jesus heals a man and it says his ears were open. His tongue was released. That word released is the same word translated dissolved. So his ears, he, he, his ears were, he couldn't talk and he couldn't hear. And Jesus healed him and his ears were opened. His tongue was released and he spoke plainly. That idea of being released is this word that is translated as dissolved. This poor guy who was mute, this poor guy who couldn't hear, was set free. His tongue was fixed. His tongue was repaired. His tongue was restored. Acts 13.43, there was a meeting of the synagogue that was broken up. Well, broken up is the same word for dissolved. 
Why am I sharing all these examples with you? Because I think it points to the meaning that this idea of something being released or dissolved means that, that something is coming to an end and something entirely new and incredible and beautiful is beginning. And I'll say this too about this word dissolved. The second Peter 3 passage is the only time that we see it translated as dissolved. So, so I think this is one of those very unusual times where our English translation really makes it hard for us to have a better idea of what's going on. We see in the second part of verse 12, the same stuff. The heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. In verse 12, to set on fire, it has to do with refining something. And the word melt, this is the only time in the New Testament that that word is found. So a few minutes ago, I asked you, what is going to happen to this physical world, this good creation that God made that has been in bondage to corruption because of our sin? Is it all going to be burned up? Is it going to be uncreated? Is it going to be disintegrated? Is it going to cease to exist? I believe that Romans 8 that I taught on last week really provides the key to understanding what 2 Peter is saying. There's a principle in Bible study and in interpretation. If there is a passage that is very unclear, it is helpful to interpret it in the light of the passages that are less debatable or less unclear. And as I look at Romans 8 over these last few weeks, and I look at 2 Peter over these last few weeks, I believe that Romans 8 makes sense and 2 Peter makes sense. I believe they're saying the same thing. Although the language is difficult, it is not incredibly clear. Romans 8.19 says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I love the movie The Lion King. Love it, love it, love it. When I was a kid and that movie came out, my mom went out shopping that day. And my dad was on a trip out of time for work, which he did a few times a year. And the day, I think it was, I want to say it was the day it was released. I was nine or ten. And my dad gets home. And I can't remember who I saw it from first, but while my mom was out shopping, she purchased the VHS. Well, my dad, while he was out of time, he got it too. So I can't remember who gave it to us first, but one of them gave it to me and my brother. And then the other one was like, and they didn't know. They hadn't talked about this. My dad had been out of time. They hadn't talked much that week. And, you know, two cocks. It's a great movie. But I remember at the end, the hyenas have been all over Pride Rock in that big giant area that is the, the central setting of the movie. And it was a wasteland. But you could still see those rocks up there, right? You could still see that rock where the king and his family lived. But then, when they ran all the bad guys out of there, there was a restoration that took place. It was beautiful. And it was, there was some continuity. That, that, I believe with what we've read in Scripture so far, there's going to be a drastic amount of change. 
I can't say that there will be as much continuity between you know, those two different scenes in that movie. Um, one illustration is if you think about a natural disaster. If there's a flood that comes through and wipes out a bunch of farms, you can say the flood destroyed those farms. But if you go back to those farms, can you still recognize them to a degree? Is it still the same place, geographically speaking? I would say, yes, it is. There's one statement by John Piper that helps, helps with this. And he, he says that when these passages say that the present earth and heavens will pass away, it does not mean that they go out of existence, but may mean that there will be such a change in them that their present condition passes away. We might say the caterpillar passes away and the butterfly emerges. This is a real passing away and there is a real con- continuity. There is a real connection in it. So what gets wiped away and what stays? One commentator says this, and I think I shared this last week. Here is a rule of thumb for figuring what will and will not make it through to our next life. Whatever properly belongs to creation will be restored, while whatever is a product of the fall will be removed. So all the good stuff that God made will not be judged and destroyed. But all the sin and the effects of sin, all of those things will be undone. There's one more thing I want to look at in verse 10. Everything that we've read about so far has to do with the heavens and the heavenly bodies. But here it speaks of the earth. The earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. For those who say God is going to destroy this planet that he created and that he has to start completely over because of verse 10, I have to point out that nowhere in this passage does it say the earth will be dissolved or melted. But at the end of verse 10, we see that what Peter has to say about what happens in the day of the Lord on the earth is that he's going to deal with sin. Jesus taught that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. That includes your deepest, darkest secret sin. Or, or I, I'll say our sin was already dealt with as we clarified earlier. But the deepest, darkest secret sins will be revealed. Hebrews 4.13 says that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So God will deal with sin on the earth. He is going to punish it all. The fire will consume everything that our sin brought into the world. And that is a purifying, that shows the purifying nature of what is happening. So, I've told you three weeks in a row, Jesus is making, he's going to make heaven and nature sing. Church, This is why heaven and nature is going to sing. Might I add, this is why we're going to sing. Because it's all going to be gone. All the sin, all the temptation, all the suffering, all the shame, all the guilt. 
All the people who hate God's people. All the people who may attack you. All that we've talked a lot about suffering in the last couple months. All of those who hate God will be absent. So that's one reason to sing. Then we'll be looking at God Himself. That's another reason to sing. I anticipate that the world to come will be similar to the Garden of Eden in many ways. All the impurities will be removed. And according to um, our passage today, there will be a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So all the sin is gone and it will be a place where righteousness dwells. Everything that takes place is pleasing to God and our world, our creation, ourselves, we ourselves are going to sing for joy to the Lord because God has dealt with evil, because he has dealt with sin. Creation is groaning. Heaven and nature is groaning. But I tell you, at the judgment, after the judgment, there's going to be no more groaning. Amen. Nobody's going to be doing that. Next week, we're going to learn more about this new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. So how do we respond to, to these truths? Well, that's pretty much the rest of the passage that we haven't covered yet. Verses 10 through 14. Look in verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? Verse 13 and 14. According to his promise, we're waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. So the second verse, part of verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? In Titus chapter 2, it says the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness, training us to reject evil behavior, training us to, to stop spinning the truth, training us to quit playing games with God, training us to come out of sexual sin, training us to stop cheating or stop stealing or to put the bottle down or to put something else down. The grace of God has appeared training us to reject and renounce ungodliness. What sort of people ought we to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Peter writes. It goes on in Titus to say, The grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Everybody listen. God's command on you right now is to grab hold of His grace to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to begin or continue living a self-controlled, upright, and godly life today. Church, I want to tell you, don't make plans to start following God later in life. Let's do it right now. Let's do it right now. If there's some sort of sin that you are holding on to or something that you're clinging to that dishonors God, don't say, well, I, I'll stop that after you know, I live my life. Don't say that. Don't say that. But let us renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Amen. Let us live lives of holiness and godliness. In verse 14. 
He goes on to say, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these. Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. There's more talk about preparation. There's more talk about preparation. How many of you prepare for things? How many of you look the exact same way right now that you did when you woke up three or four or five hours ago? You prepared. Because you knew that something was coming. You got a holiday gathering coming up? Are you just going to let people show up and it looks like your house and your house looks exactly like it does right this second? You're going to prepare, aren't you? You're exchanging gifts with somebody? You know about when you're going to do that? You've either already got the gift or you're planning to get it before then, aren't you? Y'all, we, for the most part, know when those types of things are going to happen. You know church starts at 10 o'clock on Sunday. Y'all, we don't know when the Lord is coming, but we know that He's going to come. Do not let the fact that we don't know when He's going to do it, don't, don't let that cause you to not prepare, to not be ready. Verse 14 says that God is going to find us. Are you prepared? Verse 14 goes on to say, be diligent. That means to do your best, church. Are we doing our best to live godly lives? It has to do with eagerness. It has to do to make every effort. Do you only follow Jesus when it's convenient for you? Or do you seek and strive and and work and plan and prepare as you lean on his grace and drink of his spirit? Do you do all that to get ready for the times when it's not easy to follow God? Are you training yourself for seasons of temptation that are yet to come? Or are you living in a fantasyville where it's just going to be a walk in the park all the time? Peter says, be diligent. So the Bible says that Jesus is going to judge us by our works on this great and terrible day of the Lord. What will he find? Will he find us without spot? Will he find us without blemish? Will he find us at peace? Will he find us at peace with God? Will he find us at peace with others? See, our lack of spots doesn't save us. But our lack of spots shows the judge who we belong to. Jesus knows the difference between a sheep and a goat. Even though we might not sometimes. Jesus knows the difference. And the Bible says there will be fruit. There will be fruit. 
Not only is it a lack of something, not only is it a lack of spots or a lack of blemishes, but there is noticeable fruit in the lives of people who are walking with God, who belong to God, who are saved by God. In John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. The people of God abide in Christ. And Christ abides in them. And because he is present in your life, there will be fruit. And y'all, fruit's noticeable. It's very noticeable. Jesus goes on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. The Apostle Paul says in Colossians 3, As the elect of God, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with a heart of mercy, kindness, gentleness, and patience. Will that be your clothing on the day that God arrives? Will that be your clothing on the day that the Lord arrives? Church, I want you all to be ready. Yes. I want us to be looking forward to all that is ahead. Life in this world will most likely be very hard. But there will come a day when all of that will end. And we will be in the presence of God. And all sin, all evil will be gone. And we will hear heaven and nature sing. And we will join in with them in that song. Maybe they'll be joining us. We're all going to be singing. And church, it's going to be beautiful. Let's pray.